All right. Today we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18a. If you don't know what that means, it just means that next week we'll pick up in the rest of 18. So if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open it. If you don't have one, there should be one underneath the, the chairs. You can grab that. Philippians is towards the back part of the Bible. Um, or you can look it up in the index. If you have your phone and you want to turn it there, or I guess you don't turn your phone, you would uh, click your phone. If you want to click there, then go ahead and click there. If you have a worship guide, it's in your worship guide. We're just trying to make this as accessible as possible to all of you. You are spoiled. Um, <laughs> but what I'm going to do is I just, I, I just need to pray and ask God that he would help us understand this passage. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do a, a quick prayer to God. Father, please soften our hearts to what your word says. Far too often we come to your word doubting it, reading into it, not meditating on it. Cause us to fall more in love with you because of what's written in your word. You, you have the words of life. Where else are we going to go to find that? And so please soften our hearts. Open up our ears. If there are those Christians in here today that are, that are just poor and needy, who are stumbling, just trying to make it through life, encourage them. If there are those who are actively rebelling against you and proclaiming to be children of God, would you convict them? Would you cut them to the core and cause your spirit to convict them? And if there are those who have no idea who you are, would you reveal yourself to them like you were to the Philippian church? Pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we look at today's passage, we're going to see Paul comforting the Philippian church. However, guys, it's not going to be the way that we expect Paul to comfort the Philippian church. Paul is going to start this section of this letter by saying, I want you to know. And what we need to know about just that little phrase is in ancient days, when a letter was being written right before the person would tell them exactly what was going on in their lives, the real truth of what was going on and what was happening to them, they would always start with this phrase, I want you to know. So it's kind of this, like, this is how I'm doing. And when we read this, it kind of should perk up our attention to realize what Paul's about to say is he's going to tell us what's happening to him. What He's experiencing. However, here's the strange thing about what Paul is going to do. Paul isn't going to tell us exactly every little detail about what's going on. Right now, the Apostle Paul is finding himself in prison for just being a Christian. Paul, as we've looked at before, has been whipped multiple times, received 40 lashes. He's been stoned to the point of people thinking he was dead, so they threw him out of their town. He's been thrown in prison multiple times. And eventually, he will be led to be executed by being beheaded. But right now, Paul is in prison, 
And he's going to let the Philippian church know what exactly is going on, but he's going to do it in the way of telling them not all of the circumstances that are happening, but what God is doing through those circumstances to advance the gospel. Now, this isn't exactly how we see trials and suffering, isn't it? This isn't how we look at bad situations in our life, is it? We normally don't look at bad situations and say, God, what are you doing? How are you advancing the gospel? Instead, we look at suffering and trials in our lives most of the time as a defect, don't we? We look at it as a punishment. We look at it and say, there's something wrong with me. Why is this happening? Or there's something going on in my circumstances. We look at God sometimes through punishment or this what we call punishment or defect in our lives as the God who's throwing the proverbial lightning bolt down at us, striking us because we've done something. Or we look at it as this type of Christian karma. So, you know, I cut off the kind old lady in the right lane and now my car won't start this morning because God threw his lightning bolt down on my engine and or maybe it was the cold weather today that God sent. The reason for this thinking, I believe, in our culture where we are at in the Midwest is for two reasons. The first reason is because there is a deeply rooted Catholic presence here that says you are saved by your works. God loves you based off of what you can give him. You do good things, he gives you good things in return. You do bad things, there are bad punishments that happen in return. Now, let me clarify this and just say this. There are certain sins that lead to death, but not all sins lead to death. So there are sins that cause circumstances to not go so well for us. I'm sure you all can think of some in your own life. I can think of some in my life. But that then trickles down into the culture in the Midwest. You see, we here in the Midwest are probably some of the hardest workers in all the country. It takes a hard worker to be able to get through negative 33 degree weather. We here in the Midwest do a great job of putting our heads down and just getting through things. We are hard workers, which leads to this idea then that I am entitled to a comfortable life because I work hard. Right? We work hard to play hard. We work hard to get the cabin. We work hard to get the boat. We work hard to get an early retirement. We work hard so that way I can have a comfortable life You see, there are two things, there's, sorry, one thing that these two things have in common. That this type of suffering, or this type of living, is very individualistic in thinking, and there is no room for suffering, or trials, or terrible situations like the Apostle Paul is going through. Because we look at our ideal situation. If I work hard right now at a young age, I can retire early and the rest of my life will be comfortable living. We look at the ideal life for ourselves 
And we never say there could be suffering or trials. If I just do X, Y, and Z, then life will go how I want it to. And if it doesn't, then there is something wrong with me. There's something wrong with my kids, my boss, or my spouse. And so what we do, instead of leaning into hard situations and circumstances, we think of ways of how we can get back to a comfortable lifestyle instead of deeply searching our souls and asking the most important question that we could possibly ask. God, what are you doing? Not why are you doing, what are you doing? You see, this is what we're seeing Paul constantly doing here. Paul is pointing this church to the advancement of the gospel by the very means of his terrible trial, his terrible situation. Paul is teaching this church, the Philippian church right here, to look at adversity in a way or as a way to advance the gospel. Now, if what you're hearing me right now is saying this, is saying what Paul teaches us is just to go ahead and put on a smile because everything is going to be great and gee, I just love suffering so much and you should too, then we have a wrong understanding of what Paul is doing here. Paul is teaching this church not to laugh with those who mourn. He is teaching this church that what for man means for evil, what sin means for evil, God means for good. Far too often, though, we don't take the time to ask God, what are you doing here? How are you moving? We sometimes just need to take a bit of a deeper look at what God is doing. And this right here in this section is exactly what Paul is doing. So what we're going to see Paul do is teach this church by his current situation, which isn't very good, what contentment looks like in trials, even when they appear for no reason. And he's going to teach them how even in trials and suffering and terrible situations that they are used to further God's kingdom. Paul tells the Philippian church in starting in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. What Paul is saying here is, listen up. What I'm about to say is important to you. Paul tells this church that his trials, that his situation, that his suffering has actually had the opposite effect of what they may think. I mean, think about it. It may be easy to think that since the Apostle Paul, this great church father, this great gospel proclaimer, this church starter, since he's locked up, that the advancement of the gospel in Christianity would dwindle, that it would just disappear, that it would take a hit. 
But what Paul is saying is actually, it's had the opposite effect. This isn't the case. Why? Because God takes the most unlikely, the most foolish, the most uh, far out there situations. He uses the, sh- the, the, the foolish to shame the wise things. God uses the most unlikely people in the most unlikely situations to advance the gospel. This is what Paul is being used right here in his imprisonment in Rome. This is what God is using him for. Now here, Paul is locked up at this point in his life, chained to Roman soldiers. One arm, there's a Roman soldier over on his left. This other arm, there's a Roman soldier on his right. He finds himself in this terrible situation, terrible trial, seeing that God is giving him opportunity after opportunity to have gospel conversations, to bear witness and testimony about Christ, the people that he never probably thought he would encounter in his life. Paul is having conversation after conversation with governors in Rome. He's able to have conversations with Felix, the governor that has put him in prison and kept him there. He's able to have conversations with some of the most influential people in Rome at this time because of his imprisonment. And so what Paul says is, look, guys, my imprisonment is actually working out for the better. It's advancing the gospel because I'm getting to have these gospel conversations. And because of this, Paul starts to notice a shift in the wind. Paul starts to notice that something's happening to the brothers and sisters in Rome. He's noticing an increase in boldness. The people in Rome, because Paul tells us, he tells the Philippian church right here, most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, much more bolder to speak the word without fear. Paul's trial, Paul's suffering is not being wasted. His terrible circumstances in his life right now are not being wasted, and he's acknowledging that. He's saying, look, my imprisonment, my imprisonment is advancing the gospel. It's advancing the cause. Not only am I speaking with boldness here in prison to guards and governors and other people who are so influential in Rome, but the brothers and sisters in Rome are becoming confident in Christ and speaking boldly without fear because of Paul's trial. Brothers and sisters are becoming more confident in Christ Because they see how Paul is responding to his trial. To put it simply, Paul's imprisonment is inspiring people to speak the word of God without fear. 
oftentimes we think when a great oak is cut down that we are losing shade and life and a beautiful tree. But instead, when a giant oak like Paul is cut down, what happens is it gives way for other trees to grow. And this is exactly what we are seeing, is that because Paul is in prison, the gospel does not dwindle. Instead, people become bold in Christ to speak the word of God without fear. It gave way for inspiration for others to pick up the cause to see the kingdom of God advanced. This is strange. This is a strange way to look at trials. This is a strange way to look at bad situations in our lives. But this is how the church has always responded. This is how the church has always responded, specifically in the face of persecution. During the the Protestant Reformation, they stopped letting... During the Protestant Reformation, they would burn reformers at the stake and then tell the city, come out and watch this because we don't want you to do the same thing they're doing, so we want to strike fear into you. And what was happening is these reformers, these Christians, were so bold that while, they were, that while they were being burned at the stake, they were preaching the gospel, and what was happening? People were coming to faith and leaving and speaking the word of God without fear. And so what they had to do is they literally had to tell people, you can't come anymore. Let me... I was debating on whether I would read this or not because it's kind of lengthy. But I'm going to just read something for us from the second century. It's about a slave girl, Christian slave girl called Blandina. At least I think that's how you pronounce it. It's a second century writing. This is how the church has always responded to persecution is by looking at how Christ is advancing the gospel. The entire anger of the people, governor and soldiers, was stirred up furiously against Sanctius, the deacon from Vienna, and Martus, a new convert, but a noble fighter, and Attilius, a native of Paragama, where he had always been a pillar and supporter, and Blandina, through whom Christ demonstrated that things which seem lowly and obscure and contemplatable to men are of great glory with God through her love toward him, revealed in power, not boasting in mere appearance. We all shuddered, and Blandina's earthly mistress, herself one of the martyrs, feared that on account of bodily weakness she would be unable to make bold confession. Blandina was filled with such power that she was delivered and exalted above those who were torturing her by turns from morning till evening in every way so that they confessed they were conquered and could not do anything more to her. They were amazed at her endurance because her whole body was mangled and broken. They declared that just one of these forms of torture was enough to destroy life. 
let alone so many and so great sufferings. But the blessed woman continued nobly, grew in strength by confessing her faith. She found comfort and rest and relief from the pain of her suffering by exclaiming, I am a Christian and we do nothing vile. Blandina was hung on a stake and exposed to the wild beasts who were supposed to attack her. She appeared as though she was hanging on a cross because of her ardent prayers. She inspired the other combats with great enthusiasm. They looked upon her ordeal and they saw with their outward eyes in the shape of their sister, the one who was crucified for them, that he might convince those who believe in him that everyone who suffers for Christ's glory has fellowship forever with the living God. Since none of the wild beasts at that time touched Blandina, she was taken down from the stake and thrown again into prison, preserved for another contest. Contest was when Nero was throwing Christians into the Colosseum so that way they could be eaten by wild beasts. On the last day of these contests, Blandina was again brought in together with Ponticus, a boy who was about 15 years old. 15 years old! 15 years old! Every day they had been brought in to see the sufferings of others and had been pressured to swear by the pagan idols. But they stood steadfast and despised the idols so that the mob became furious. They had no compassion for the boy's youth nor any respect for the tender sex of the woman. So they subjected them to all the terrible sufferings and took them through the whole course of torture, repeatedly pressing them to swear by the idols, but to no avail. Ponticus was encouraged by his sister so that even the pagans could see she was confirming his strength. After nobly enduring every torture, he gave up his spirit, but the blessed Blandina, last of all, having encouraged her children like a noble mother and sent them ahead in victory to the king herself, suffered all their conflicts and hurried after them, exulting and rejoicing in her departure as if she were called to a marriage supper. Rather than being thrown to wild beasts after whipping her, giving her to the beasts and burning her with hot irons, the authorities finally dropped her into a basket and threw her to a bowl. The beast gored her again and again, but she was now indifferent to all that befell her because of her hope. Her firm hold on all that her faith meant and her communion with Christ. Then she too was sacrificed. The pagans themselves admitted they had never known a woman suffer so much for so long. It may appear that our sufferings are for nothing. But our sufferings are never for nothing. Never. When trials of various kinds come our way, God is at work in our lives 
and at work in advancing the gospel through our lives. But we must have eyes open to see it. Because it would have been easy for Paul to look at his current situation of being in prison as a waste. Paul was in prison because he was just a Christian. He wasn't trying to overthrow anything. He was a believer in Christ, preaching the gospel, and he was thrown in prison for it. And yet, in his eyes, he saw it as an opportunity for the gospel to advance. And he saw it advance through the imperial guards and through brothers and sisters. However, even though most of the brothers and sisters were becoming confident in Christ and bold to speak the word without fear, what we see are two responses or two primary ways that this being bold or speaking the word without fear were being carried out. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So there were two types of way that people were preaching or speaking the gospel. Some were doing it through envy and rivalry and others out of goodwill. So we'll, let's just take some time to look at these two different people. We'll, we'll look at the, the first, the, the haters is what we'll call them. They were preaching from envy and rivalry. Now Paul doesn't give us exact reasons or a lot of reasons of why this was happening, but he does tell them some of the reason. Paul knows that that their envy and rivalry is leading them to preach the gospel out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict him in his imprisonment. Now, first off, Paul doesn't call these brothers false teachers. So we need to know that. But he does call out their reasoning for preaching the gospel. It's to afflict him. It's to cause him pain. It's to build a platform for themselves. All they cared about was themselves. Their proclamation, their preaching of the good news was for the sole reason of selfish ambition. It wasn't preached sincerely. It was to harm Paul. If Paul was living today, these probably would have been the discernment bloggers and vloggers. Constantly critiquing every little thing that a pastor or a preacher or a Christian says. Look, if I had a dollar for every article, vlogger, Facebooker, Twitterer, Instagrammer, TikToker, whatever, acted this way, I feel like Sharice and I could probably go on a pretty good vacation. We're not told exactly what they're saying about Paul, but we might be able to guess that this group was preaching Christ and saying, Christ has died for you. But that Apostle Paul, he's sold out to Rome. Because if he wouldn't have sold out to Rome, they would have executed him by now, so he must have sold out to Rome. He must be one of those liberals. Because there's no way that if he went to sold out to Rome that he'd still be living right now. Maybe some were acting like Job's friends and saying, Look, Christ died for us, yes, but the Apostle Paul, he's found himself in prison, so he must have some type of underlying secret sin that's put him there. 
So we probably shouldn't listen to him anymore because of the secret sin that has him in there. We don't know much, but we do know that it was for the sole purpose of envy, rivalry, selfish ambition. It wasn't being preached sincerely, and it was to afflict the Apostle Paul. The second group, however, preached out of goodwill. And Paul tells us, that the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So this group, they're saying, Paul, we, we believe in you. We trust you. We believe that God's will is being done in your life. We believe that where you're at right now, God has you for the defense of the gospel. These are Paul's encouragers. These people were in Paul's corner saying, look, we're not, we're not buying in to what others are saying we're praying for you we're we're marching along with you we're standing with you paul we know that christ has you where he has you for the defense of the gospel so keep on pressing forward paul we trust you these are paul's encouragers so we see that people are becoming confident in Christ through Paul's trial. But some are doing it out of envy and rivalry, and others are doing it out of goodwill. And how would we expect Paul's response to be? I mean, think about it. You are in prison, and that could give way to, to grumbling, to saying, why, God, Why? But Paul doesn't see it that way. He says the gospel is being advanced. Now we move on to the next situation. We could see Paul complaining and saying, God, why? I, I, I know you're advancing the gospel, but why do people have to be slandering my name? Why can't all of them just be pro proclaiming the gospel in good will? And yet this isn't Paul's response. He once again says, I'm not going to look at my current circumstances. Paul goes on to say, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. How in the world could a man say, I rejoice that people are slandering my name? How in the world could a man say, I rejoice in my trials, in my sufferings, in my imprisonment? Because Paul could be focusing on his trial, but he's not. He's focusing on what God is doing through it. This is where it's at times hard to understand God's will. This is where it's at times hard to understand why God allows suffering. Because we could easily look at this section and say, how in the world did the early church, how in the world did Christianity take root? through all of this suffering? How did it happen that it happened through a man who was in prison? That's not how it works, is it? 
in the normal society, things get done by the movers and shakers, by the influential people. Wouldn't it make sense that Christianity would have spread over governors and and Caesars and influential people? But this is not what we see. God's ways aren't our ways. The way that God accomplishes the advancement of his gospel, the way that God accomplishes the gospel in our own lives is through suffering. We must walk through suffering. We cannot avoid it and walk around it. Let's look at it this way, okay? Paul is saying that the gospel is advancing through his imprisonment. It's through his sufferings that the gospel is advancing. Let's go back a few decades and ask the question, how was the kingdom of God, how was the gospel set into motion? It's through Jesus' suffering on the cross. Jesus suffered the ultimate punishment for us. He did it so that we could be partakers of the gospel. Jesus' mission in life was to live a perfect life in our place that we were called to live. And look, you can't live up to that standard of perfection. Nobody can other than Jesus. And he did it so that he could be our perfect sacrifice for our sins, so that when we trust in him, we could have eternal life. Jesus' life mission was to suffer for us because of our sins. The gospel in our lives is advanced through Jesus' suffering on the cross. And by his suffering, do you know what he does? He brings glory to God the Father and salvation to the sinner. Essentially, Jesus suffered. So why won't you? This is what Paul is saying. This is what Paul believes. If the Messiah had to suffer for the advancement of the gospel, then what in the world, or why in the world do I think I wouldn't suffer? So here's the good news, okay? Here's the most magnificent news. Is that those who call Jesus their Savior, their suffering, their trials, their terrible situations aren't wasted. They're not wasted. Your trials and sufferings are not wasted as a Christian. Because if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. And here's another promise. Is that he sympathizes with you in your trials, in your sufferings. He doesn't look at you and is repulsed by you saying, can't you just get your act together? Come on. No. He looks you dead in your frail, poor, and needy eyes. 
God says, I've come for you. You're the one who I came to save. You don't have to have it together to come to me. Just come to me. So if you're not a Christian and you're here with us this morning, do you see how weak you are yet? It's because of the weak that Jesus has come to save. So come to Jesus. Come to Jesus right now. He will be your gentle and lowly Savior who is with you in your weakness. And so before we pray and sing our last song, I want to encourage us just in two ways, okay? Suffering is not fun. Neither are trials. And they're never going to be fun and they never will be fun, but they give us great opportunities to grow, to be like Christ and see the gospel advanced. And so first, this is the the first one that I want to talk about, is that the gospel is advanced specifically through suffering, even when the church is being persecuted. Okay, so I think right now one thing that a lot of, uh, of Christians in America are thinking, or at least most are thinking, maybe not all, but most are thinking, is this idea of are we as a church here in America close to persecution? I think the, that stems from this idea of, well, it looks like that our government is becoming more socialistic and there's talks of Marxism going on. And so there are concerns. Ah. So let me say this. I, I want to say that it is fantastic that we live in a democracy. But if by chance America's democracy flies out the window and something else takes over and persecution comes to the church here in the States, God will use it to advance his kingdom. Let me say it again. If persecution comes to the church in America, God will use it to advance his kingdom. Mark, er, Frank, the theologian that I mentioned last week, Frank Thielem, I think that's how, I pr- how you pronounce it, was talking about this passage, and and he actually went on to say this. All right? I think it's very, very good timing. Cuba provides an instructive case study. Five years after the collapse of the Berlin Wall, theologian Thomas Odin visited congregations in the Methodist Church of Cuba and discovered that despite 35 years of oppression and miserable economic conditions, the Methodists had grown from a low 6,000 to over 50,000 members. Nothing short of a spiritual revelation reminiscent of Acts 2, said Odin, had taken place. Much of this spiritual and numerical growth, moreover, could be attributed to people both young and old who had grown weary of the official atheist party line and turned to the church to find more satisfying answers to the meaning of life. 
During the previous four decades, the best efforts of Fidel Castro's tyrannical regime had not succeeded in stamping out the church. I'm just going to read that sentence one more time. During the previous four decades, the best efforts of Fidel Castro's tyrannical regime had not succeeded in stamping out the church. Nothing will succeed in stamping out the church. No person, nothing. Christ is one. Despite the personal cost of everything, from a chance at a university education to long prison terms, Christians remained faithful and the church had grown. People, God uses suffering to advance his kingdom. Christ's church was built for this. And so we must remain faithful. We must continue to press on to continue to make Christ Jesus our own, just like he, through his suffering, has made us his own. And we must be patient because there will come a day when people will see that the things of this world do not satisfy, that darkness never brings light. Only true light brings light. And that light is Jesus Christ. Second, stemming from this. This one might be a little harder. But joy is possible in suffering, trials, and adversities when we fix our eyes on Jesus. Joy is possible in adversities when we fix our eyes on Jesus. Paul's deep-seated contentment in life is not based on momentary situation. Paul is able to rejoice in prison while he is being slandered, knowing that this is putting him even more in danger. And he's able to say, I rejoice in all of that because the gospel is being advanced. Paul cared only about living for Christ. Whether I live or whether I die, I am not my own. It's insensitive and evil to tell someone suffering just to get over it. And this isn't what Paul is doing. Instead, what Paul is doing is showing this church that you can have joy in the deepest pains of your life when you fix your eyes on Jesus and know that he is doing something. So here's a very practical, maybe you want to grow in this area of your life. I want to become more joyful in my sufferings and my trials. Here's just very practical. Pick up biographies of people who have suffered in the past and read them. Or watch documentaries. You can go on uh, Amazon and they've got documentaries of faithful Christian men and women of the past who have suffered terrible things. And be inspired. Church, God's not going to waste your suffering. This is a truth that we constantly need to tell ourselves. He will use it. But we need to ask, are we willing to submit and let him use it? 
Are we willing to come to God and not say, why God? We have the book of Job and we see what that question, where that question leads Job. Not that it's wrong to ask that question, but God is saying there's a better question, what? What am I doing in your life? Are we willing to do the really hard work to look past our situations and circumstances and see how God is using them? And then what we need to do is just day by day, we need to just walk, taking one step after another, trusting that he is faithful to keep us from stumbling, trusting that he is faithfully using it to produce a weight of glory. Let's pray. Father, forgive me. Forgive me for far too often looking at my current circumstances and asking why. Allow my heart, this church's heart, these people's hearts to look to you and say, how, God, what are you doing in my life? How are you causing me to grow? Allow us to see that our suffering is not wasted, but instead it's to cause us to worship you more to see the kingdom of God advance, to see gospel growth in our own lives, to become more like Christ. God, please, allow our hearts to see that your will in our lives does include suffering, but it is for our good. So we pray this saying, you, God, are good, and we trust you. In Jesus' name.